Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is brought to you by the employee-owned company Golden Artist Colors. Golden is a company committed to making the best materials for working artists and is dedicated to working with artists to inform them on how their paints work. Golden often does workshops at schools showing students all the capabilities of their materials. They're located in upstate New York, and you can find them in art stores or online at goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is supported by the New York Studio School, where drawing, painting, and sculpture are studied in depth, debated energetically, and created with passion. The New York Studio School offers a range of programs, including the MFA, their certificate program, the marathon program, evening and Saturday classes, and a distinguished lecture series that is free and open to the public. The school's internationally recognized marathons are two-week intensive courses in drawing, painting, and sculpture. All levels are welcome to enroll for the summer 2019 marathons. Apply online today at nyss.org. Chloe Wise is an artist born in Canada who lives and works in New York City. She received her BFA at Concordia University in Montreal, Quebec. She's had solo shows at Almin Rick in Paris and her current solo show there in London, a gallery division in Montreal, retrospective gallery in Hudson, New York, and a gallery Sebastian Bertrand in Geneva, Switzerland. She's had numerous group shows, including ones at Arsenal Contemporary, Art Basel Miami Beach, V1 Gallery in Copenhagen, Sergeant's Daughters Journal Gallery, 4906 in LA, Atlanta Contemporary, Eric Firestone, and more. Her work has been covered in Artnet, Architectural Digest, 212 Magazine, Purple Diary, Freeze, Surface, Forbes, High Fructose, and many others. I stopped by Chloe's Lower East Side studio just after her return from her opening of her solo show, Not That We Don't, at All Mean Rick, in London for a talk about layered process, bodily fluids, growing as a painter, making sculptures, her cat and studio mate Pluto, and much more. Here's our conversation. I don't know if it's psychological. It is. Or if it actually does something to you. Isn't it mushroom or something? I believe in everything mushroom related because it makes sense that you'd be able to find such healing benefits. And they taste good. Mm-hmm. Well, ashwagandha tastes kind of bad and I have it in a, in a bag. And I never close anything, like I don't close the cap on olive oil or any nail polish or anything. Let it breathe. Or my oil paint because... What is that? I just... That's chlorella in water, chlorophyll in water. Oh, nice. Um, because I'm, I have ADD and I'm just really bad at um, remembering to follow things through all the way. I'm in a rush all the time for no reason in particular. But so I always accidentally leave my bag of any of my Ayurvedic herbs open and then Pluto will be like... Meow, meow, meow. And then suddenly I'll see a cloud of mushroom... Herbaceous. He just like knocks it over and then it explodes into this like beautiful little cloud and he's all super fooded. It's uplifting. Yeah. Yeah, the collagen thing is huge in Japan. Everywhere it makes you go. Sense. It's it's great. I like the stuff. They put it in everything. But it's good for your skin, right? And hair, I believe it. Because my hair was this short this time last year. I know it's so long. It just makes it grow faster. I think so, and stronger. Like, I, I like to believe it. I think who knows? It could be a placebo. 
Maybe belief is all you need to grow your hair. I think it's true. I mean, if stress causes medical issues, mm-hmm. then, then belief. why wouldn't belief and positivity be the opposite of Then that? that would mean that like really religious, pious believers would have the healthiest hair. Oh my God, they do. Do they? Yeah. I haven't hung out with those. Me neither. L- but. Clothes <laughs> from a distance. Yeah. But I feel like the really long, you see somebody with a really long kind of ass grazing hair and you're like, they believe in God. Right. They've got the spirit in their hair. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> They've got belief. <laughs> yeah, you, do you see bald people mm. in that profession often? Yeah, you do, actually. Oh. And Union Square. Maybe it's a different thing. Mm. Maybe le- best to leave religion out of all of the uh No, it's from the hats. If you wear oh, a hat okay. a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Like the Tiger Woods thing? i got a couple keepas right there. Wait, what? Oh, yeah, nice. Because it was Passover. It was. I was in Japan for that. Oh, good. <laughs> what do they do for Passover in Japan? I don't know, but Nier was in the group show, Nier Hood. You know him, an artist? And he brought he brought some uh, stuff to eat for Passover. Nice. I have matzah kind of everywhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We had some. That's so nice. Even over there, we took part. That's good. That's good. <laughs> I had a Seder here at my studio. Yeah. Um, it was fun. I had done one a few years back um, in a performative art way at Jeffrey Deitch's gallery, where we had about 60 people come, most of whom were not Jewish and had never attended uh, Passover Seder. And I made this video that was a montage of scenes from the Rugrats episode where they explain <laughs> Passover. They and, did? Um, yeah, I mean, Rugrats is a great way to learn about uh, most important things, Passover, that's it. But um, <laughs> sharing, sharing or not sharing. <laughs> sharing the dangers is caring. Of, the dangers of sharing or not sharing. Um, but so it was a montage of that and then this Sex in the City episode where there was some sort of Passover-related imagery and I don't know what else, but I made a video of that stuff. Okay, the police are coming because they're like, <laughs> you made that video? <laughs> um, and uh, I also have some sculpture work that is matzo-related. Like there's, um, actually behind you, there's the French toast on a Seder plate that is called um, Seder Matzakism. Seder Masochism. And then I have a matzah sculpture that's like a paddle and also those matzah cuffs. Oh, yeah, like you've bond- got a case. Bo- bondage matzah sculptures, and that's called um, Matzakism. Oh, my goodness. So this is all came out of Rugrats. It all, it's, it's all based <laughs> on Rugrats um, and the bondage themes that go throughout Rugrats. Well, because Passover is about breaking free from slavery. And so I was taking that to a BDSM imagery kind of place and so I made those works but anyways we had this Passover Seder it was amazing we hung a bunch of those pieces of mine but more importantly everybody participated because you know in Passover you um there's a play that you can sort of wrangle the kids into participating into the whole ceremony by um giving them a part to play Uh and so and I had the props for it so like Jeffrey was pharaoh he had a pharaoh hat um Jamian was the slave driver because it's about slavery. Um, my friend Tor was who that's a huge painting of him right there. Mm-hmm. He was um, Moses with beard. My friend Richie Shazan was God. He was like, you are going to let my people go right now. <laughs> <laughs> like Moses, you run and you tell Pharaoh and Jeffrey's like, um, <laughs> so you, you produced this. Event. So yeah, like, well, we did this together and I, I wrote the play in such a way that it was participatory, yeah. but we didn't warn anybody what their part was going to be. And so, we also made Passover um, really not Jewishy mm-hmm. because it's actually a great story that's about um, marginalization and slavery and borders, and you can 
see where this is going. It could be. It was applied. 2016. Right, it was right. a. V- it still is a really fraught time, but it was a time that it, it was nice to have this sort of way of bringing in um, this discussion, but making it playful and making it fun. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. but it was great, and um, and so because that was such a fun experience, I longed to have another Passover Seder. So I did a mini one the other day, but it was like the day Here. I got off the plane from, or the day after I got back from London. So it was, yeah. You were jet lagged? Yes. And I still haven't cleaned up all the matzah. Just crumbs everywhere. <laughs> so did you grow, logical question, did you grow up really religious or no. somewhat? Yeah, Jewish. Light? Yeah, Jew light. I think, I didn't have a bat mitzvah, which is... Something I think about frequently. Um, no, I mean, I grew up in a... Where'd you grow up? I in Montreal. In That's right. Mm-hmm. Canadian. I'm both. I'm also American. Um, I grew up in Montreal, and I went to did some Jewishy things, but there was never a real insistence on the belief part of it. Yeah. And I feel like when I press my parents on that, their sort of beliefs are not super grounded in a real real religious necessity. They're sort of like, oh, well, this is part of the tradition of, you know, my experience on a Friday or my experience on a Hanukkah or my, it's actually like my, me in contrast to being Catholic or Christian or something. Yeah. Well, I know I'm not that. I know I'm not someone who follows, um, who does Christmas. So I must do Hanukkah. Yeah. (laughs) Sort of like, this is what you do. Not this, but that, but, um, was there a community? Yeah, totally. So it wasn't just you, like, I'm the only Jew from Montreal. No, Leonard Cohen. No, like in your school, you know <laughs> no, what I mean? Yeah, there was a mix. It was a mix. I w- didn't do anything that religious. It was a mix. Um, and it was never a huge part of my life. But what was, it was very normalized in the sense that the traditional elements of it, for example, the food choices or the songs um, were something that I, I um, just took for granted in a way, but also appreciated. Yeah. Sort of in a Larry David kind of way where it's just a lot of there's a lot of humor in in a lot of those in the foods for example like matzo balls hilarious right um and i think that's why i think it's part of my identity in a way but it's not it's not the religion part of the belief part it's more the tradition and the and the the rhetoric and the sense of humor even this the tone i think you can tell i'm jewish just from the way i speak right. and um you know watching curb your enthusiasm is basically exactly my my life yeah my upbringing yeah it's funny that kind of that specific humor. <laughs> yeah. Which is so like when you said matzah, I just immediately thought You're of like, the uh, <laughs> I thought of the Seinfeld. Larry. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, Seinfeld. Yeah. Just leaving it of, out there like a matzah ball, you know. Mm-hmm. I can't not go there in a my mind. A lot of complaining. <laughs> no, totally. And you shouldn't not go there. Yeah. <laughs> but Well, uh, as like when I was growing up, I grew up like Lutheran, I guess, was what we were, but I never went to church. My mm-hmm. parents never went to church. Religion wasn't really there except for like once in a while, the inspirational quote on the right. refrigerator. Oh, that was it. Yeah. So I didn't even, and I didn't have an understanding of other religions at all, really. Mm-hmm. There just wasn't any. I feel like when I became vegetarian and got my first peace sign tattoo, I started to read about Taoism and Buddhism a little bit. Like it's a ninth grade. Sort all of on vegeta- the same day. Vegeta- yes, all the same day. <laughs> it's like a vegetarian um, Are you stepping still? stone. Are you still vegetarian? No. Oh. I was vegetarian for eight years, and that's eight years of eating animals I can never get back. But I can try. <laughs> you no. can make up for lost time. <laughs> <laughs> I love eating animals, but I also am a true believer that if we were all vegetarian or flexitarian, 
Why does it have to be so binary? It right. could just be flexy. It would be um, a huge improvement in the way we are going, speeding downhill in this climate emergency, but let's not go there right now. Yeah, yeah. I became vegetarian in college, and I yeah. never looked back. Oh, not, you're still vegetarian? Yeah. Good for you. That was 93. Wow. And it was just because I felt better. Great. I, li- I lived across from a McDonald's in college. So I did super, without getting fat, I was too young. My mm. metabolism was too high, but I did the super size me you thing. You truly dodged a bullet, a nugget bullet. Yeah. Um, I don't like that stuff. I just think that if you choose to eat um, meat or animal products in a non-crazy, disgusting, industrialized, supersized way, it's fine. Like yeah. I, I consider myself an opportunistic eater. If I'm traveling or I'm at a restaurant that a friend is the chef at, for example, which I tend to try to do, like, for example, in Montreal, a lot of my friends are in restaurants. Or So whenever I, when I was in Montreal, when I grew up, I was always eating meat that I tr- super trusted. Right. Um, and so I prefer to I'd be open to that experience or to be receptive with mouth wide open to good things because I'm a hedonist. But I also, I wouldn't really go into like a McDonald's and, and chunk up on some nugs because well, that's what I was doing. messed up stuff. It was cheap and every day I was yeah, just going. That's, why, that's what's so horrible about the way that it's, it's so encouraged. Yeah. Um, it's so affordable to eat that way. And Pluto quick. looks exactly like a chicken nugget, so it's really hard for me. <laughs> Do you get um, the craving? Yeah, I mean, he looks like a rotisserie <laughs> chicken now that he's gotten bigger. This right. is my Siamese cat, Pluto. Yeah. Um, his center was, has expanded a little bit. Oh, yeah. Look at his curvy bod. He looks so much like a rotisserie chicken. If chicken could be a dessert, I don't know what it would be, but it would be Pluto. Like a dessert chicken. A sweet like a, chicken. A sweet chicken. I always call him my sweet chicken. Glazed. Mm. Like, like those roast sweet. ducks you see in the windows in Chinatown. They look so sweet. Yes, but if they were if they were decidedly dessert, if they yeah. were served with like a little honey drizzle, maybe a whipped cream, a little cherry on top. I feel like that's supposed to make me hungry, but I'm getting a little nauseous. I know, but look <laughs> at him. He's such a little chicken. Mm-hmm. I get really tempted to um, actually eat him. He looks so happy. He is so happy. He's plus size. He's very body positive. Um, he's gorge. So, okay. So Sorry. Montreal. So yeah, Montreal, and then I moved here. Were, were your parents, were you in a creative atmosphere growing up? Um, I mean, was it something in that a way, you yeah. always yeah. had? Yeah, ever, I mean, I skipped a grade because of my I'm, baby's first zine. Like, I made, a, I made a, oh, yeah. a, a book, I suppose, that I illustrated and wrote as a baby child. And I also, I guess, bound it, and I showed up to school one day like this is what I made and they're like straight really? <laughs> straight to the sixth grade or whatever yeah no I, so I skipped a grade but I was always really I was always really um, drawing and painting at all times were your parents and creative? my mom is an incredible painter but she didn't she didn't do, do that as well a, as we were saying before she was responsible yeah exactly <laughs> well, yeah exactly um, she painted in the late 70s and I found the paintings because my parents are hoarders and so I found it in their house and her paintings are so beautiful. There's only a few oh, really? of them and they're... What so, were they like? They're, the palette is, is incredible, um, much like her clothes, which I, I almost exclusively wear my mom's clothes from the 70s. Um, they're all um, in, in like an ochres and umbers, burnt sienna kind of I can see the fall palette. colors, very that 70s. 70s yeah, palette. Exactly. Sort of with a de Kooning-y kind of abstraction, like a gestural, mm-hmm. messy, and it's beautiful. And I 
have a, an appreciation for abstract painting or gestural abstraction, but I don't go down that route. It doesn't feel natural to me. Mm-hmm. So I'm in awe of looking at my mom, who's this sort of other version of me. And I'm like, what was your brain doing that was allowing you to, like, wh- where, was, wh- where was this coming from? What were you thinking at the time? What was going on? I, I want so badly to know more about that painting experience of hers, but she's sort of like, oh, it's nothing, honey, and like brushes it off, but I'm super impressed by it. Did she go to school for it? No. It was just on the no, side? No, I think it was on the side. And... um it was the seventies, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my mom's hysterical. She's the funniest, um, funniest person. But it's funny. There's photos of her holding her Siamese cat in front of her um, paintings, um, and it's That's funny. really um, spitting. That's where you got it. Mm-hmm. But so they, my parents are super supportive of that because ever since I was like four, I was the drawing kid, the painting kid, and in school I would stay in it, um, recess or whatever, and even in high school, and I was always working on honestly portraits and honestly it's very similar to what i'm doing now i guess i haven't evolved <laughs> i recently saw a friend of mine that i've known since i was three since we were three as she came to my show in london and she was just like honestly you have not changed at all and I'm, i was like i think thank you but also sorry <laughs> but so i was really just doing the same thing then yeah yeah and well, you seem like a people person so it makes sense that completely. you're into portraiture and mm-hmm. i think that's where it comes from it's like a love and- yeah I think it's a love of people, a love of features, a love of the expressions that you can see um, in someone's eyes. Or I've always been really drawn to that. And yeah, as you said, more recently, group dynamics with my new work. But um, I was also making comedic work when I was in elementary school and high school, and I didn't realize that that was so linked to my work now. Comedic, as like in, as in video. I was making oh, like, it like a webcam, or nice. I was making. I made. Um, I made a claymation about Gandhi's life in French. Whoa. Yeah, and it's put it on YouTube. I mean, it's kind of good. It holds up. I'm not going to lie. But there was always um, an element of constant need to create, and my parents were super supportive of that. So That's cool. What yeah. did your dad do? Um, my dad is uh, an accountant um, for, I don't know, Canadian business stuff. But he's into the creative side that you Yeah, you've... I mean, yeah, they're supportive. It's not like they're not super involved in or they don't know too, too much about any of the stuff. But my, my dad's very cute. He's always forwarding me like art net or art news articles, oh, like yeah. listicles. And I'm like, I don't want to read the listicle, <laughs> like top 10 white male artists to follow on Reddit. I'm like, I don't want that. Dad. But no, my parents are super, um, yeah, they're in, they're really, they're adorable. They're really excited. They came to my show in London. Nice. Yeah. They're really cute. So when you went to school, it was just, it felt natural. Like yeah. this is something I'm going to pursue. Yeah. I went to school in Canada it wasn't a big, crazy deal. It was sort of a natural progression. I went to a Canadian university, not a fancy school, and shout out Concordia. Sorry, no shade. No, no, that's good. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, I was uh, I focused on painting and drawing, and then I went to Toronto for a semester. Went to OCAD and more painting and drawing, and then I moved to New York one day. Just well, got yeah. the itch. I was I was working for an artist, Kent Monkman, who's an incredible incredible artist in Toronto, and I was painting for him. And then they were like, "We're gonna let you go." I guess I wasn't that good. <laughs> <laughs> and I was thinking for a long time about moving to New York because I have the American passport, and I sort of felt like I had outgrown the allotment for my ambition in Canada. Mm-hmm. It was sort of like you're weird because you're 
working so much or you are making us uncomfortable because you have such crazy um, aspirations. So right. can you go? Because <laughs> Canada is sort of, there's this like social democratic sort of like chillness. Stay in your lane. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to. So I left. <laughs> so, I left. so I drove down and... When was this? I guess I moved here six years ago. I suppose. I don't know. And you, did you know a lot of people who yeah. just came? I had friends that had... Um, from from Montreal that had moved to New York, I had friends that I had been visiting that I had made here, and um, I sort of yeah. That makes it easier. Yeah, and it was a really great and easy and fun and welcoming transition. It feels like New York is one of those places where everyone is has been a new person before. Everyone has come here from somewhere else. Yeah. So no one's shy to um, accept or um, find out more about someone who just gets off the the bus from another right another place it's like there's a an openness to um to the to the the new one so Isn't, it's I, funny because like the la feels like the opposite of that where you get off the bus there's like a different dynamic tinsel of like, town like i want to come make it yeah in I new york you just come and you expect to just be here i like shrugged and i was like what's <laughs> up you guys and everyone's like hey i mean we're here do you want to join yeah and i was like sure not like you can't make it in a club, sort of. Well, exactly, and it didn't. Yeah, it didn't feel like a a stressful time, or a or a. It just felt like a natural progression because um, it felt like I graduated, and then I graduated to another country. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I just, I think I'm really thankful for the friends I made because all the friends I made the first month or two that I moved here are still my best friends today, and I'm really lucky. Are they Incredible. people who do a lot of different things, or artists, yeah, or both? Yeah. And a lot a of my friends, um, are, you know, show up in my work a lot, show up mm-hmm. in my video work or my paintings. And, um, yeah, I feel really blessed by the group of people that are, I'm constantly, um, faced with or meeting or coming into contact with in New York. It's such an amazing place. It sounds like an it. easy transition. Yeah. Was it hard for you to get like the, the studio making work thing set up or did it, that come easy? Yeah, I mean, I had never had a studio. I worked for other artists. So when I when I moved here, I worked for Martin Creed at Gavin Brown for a minute, and I worked for Brad Trammell. Um How was that? <laughs> great. I mean, honestly, really fun. I learned a lot. He's hysterically funny. Um, love the memes. But he was making physical work. We were making physical work at the time, he, and he taught me so much about ways of seeing. This is Martin. And Brad. Oh, Brad. Yeah, Brad, I learned the most from. I mean, Martin, uh, one time I had to drive to um, Costco and buy around 2,000 toilet paper rolls, and he made a pyramid of them in the gallery. This is the Gavin Brown show, and Gavin Brown used to be on Leroy. Yeah. And um, I guess that kind of thing combined with Brad's way of seeing and the way of seeing how, uh, or seeing promise in almost any object, walking into, I don't know, Home Depot or scrolling onto Etsy and, and finding um, potential in mon- seemingly mundane objects. I think it really, I think that paired with um, the sense of humor and the time, because it was a moment where people were starting to negotiate how the internet could be um, ne- utilized to further the work in a way, Yeah. Um, as opposed to just a venue for carrying the work. Like how can it incorporate the message of the work further. Um, so I think I learned a lot from those two. And um, I got a studio. My first studio was in Sunset Park because I didn't know 
that Brooklyn wasn't a small neighborhood. <laughs> I was on Craigslist and I scrolled up. Oh, a studio in Brooklyn sounds good. It's inexpensive. Fine. So I like shared the studio with a friend in Sunset Park. It was like three hundred bucks. It was. Did you live in the city? No, I lived in Greenpoint. Oh, okay. So I would go. It was such a commute. So far, yeah. I mean, I was also working for Brad in Red Hook, so there was a lot of commuting around until finally it occurred to me. Oh yeah, maybe that's really really far, and it would make more sense to get a studio in my own area. So yeah. then I got a studio in Bushwick, which I shared with three people. And then I like slowly graduated out of that studio into like the same building, different floor. And then now I'm here in this studio. I haven't graduated to Manhattan yet. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine. Yeah. It's so nice, but I, I well, can't imagine living and working. I'm going to say, first of all, Alphabet City is the Brooklyn of Manhattan. That's true. It's not Manhattan-y. You know, this is an amazing situation because um, I get to be in the city, which is what I wanted. I moved to New York to be in New York. So that's how I feel about having access at the you know drop of a fedora. Right. If I want to be at a friend's opening or a restaurant or go buy materials or go see my personal trainer, shout out Alex, um, <laughs> who I canceled on today. Um, then can, I can be there really quickly. I can bike everywhere, walk everywhere. So for me, the, you know, the, the long commuting is something I didn't want to do anymore but I love the live work situation as well because for me between painting and whether it's video or writing um, my work doesn't end at you know 9, right. 8 p.m. when I finish when I you wash my brushes out. no yeah. I come home after I go out or something and I keep painting or I wake up in, in a half sleepy state I begin to you know fiddle with something and it's nice painting. isn't it I love that it's I not really so like it. punching the clock I, can't I used that. to have that before I had my son, and then it had to become a little more regimented, mm-hmm. you know? But yeah, that's nice whenever you can just kind of... I would say it's still regimented in, in the sense that I work every single day when I'm in town, yeah. which is mostly. And I do treat it like a job when I'm, you know, I say, oh, I have work tomorrow, right. which is just, oh, I have to wake up, cuddle my cat, and then start painting more tomorrow. And that's work. Ashwagandha latte. Right. It's work. It's work. But um, so I treat it like a job. I mean, I work 12 hours a day yeah. most of the time. But I like that I don't have to be cut off by, um, you know, office hours. Yeah. I think that I did that where I lived, where I worked for a long time. And I really loved it. Like, I used to live in the Gretsch building before it became condos. Oh. You know that big building right off the Williamsburg Bridge? That must have been really nice pre-condo. It was. It was just a giant open space. And I lived where I worked, so I would just wake Imagine up. Imagine we could take like the art history brush from Photoshop and just uncondofy so right. many of these studio spaces. <laughs> it would be nice. It would be so nice. Yeah. It was not luxury. But, um, but I think I did that for probably like 10 years. Mm. And then when I had my son, it was almost like a good thing because I needed a little bit of mm-hmm. lifetime. You know what I mean? Totally. Where it was just like so much, just living and working, living and working. Mm-hmm. And I was bad at going out and doing things it sounds like you have a good balance of where you're going out and i mean something gets sacrificed and it's sleep yeah but sleep is extremely boring it is and so i don't particularly care for it and um i will just be awake for many many hours painting and then i am um, inherently a social person so i'll i'll do the social thing as well but what's really great for me about having a live work is that um I have people over all the time. As I said, I had the Passover Seder. I'll throw dinner parties here. I love cooking. So I always have people over. And um, what's great about it is I don't have to leave or take off my paint pants. Right. Because I hate 
wearing paint pants out in public. I think it's really embarrassing to be like, oh, Look I'm a painter. Me. Can't you see by my pants? <laughs> right. They are covered in paint, uh, artfully splashed. Yeah. But So I, I really prefer to not have to leave at all. Yeah. And so if I can be in my studio for four or five days without leaving and still have access to friendship and snacks, which you can get those things to come to you. Right. Then so be it. And so I won't leave sometimes it, for a really long time. It's kind of Warholian of you. I appreciate that. I just got back actually two days ago from the Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh. That's where I'm from. Oh, amazing. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be doing a show there in 2020. That's exciting. I'm so excited. Wait, did you see Devin's show? Um, no, it I didn't. just came down. I, yeah, it yeah. just came down. Um, but everyone was talking about it, yeah. right? speaking highly of it, of course. I'm really excited. I was, um, I love, I love the whole team there. They're incredible. Um, How exciting. Well, I mean, personally too. Like I'm from Pittsburgh and Warhol was always in my life. I love that. I love yeah. when you land at the airport and right away there's like Warhol wallpaper. Yeah. And um, I mean, I have been obsessed with Warhol since I was a kid. Velvet Underground is my favorite band or was my favorite band. Yeah. My first was my first favorite band when I was right, like right. in the ninth grade. Peace Sign Tattoo. All of that. That's and real? You yeah, it's white. Place. So it doesn't really count, you know. But it it's you it's know, there. this is me um, letting my guard down, opening up to you about my my <laughs> oh, it only mistakes. Took Twenty minutes, yeah, or so. barely. <laughs> <laughs> this is when my coffee kicks in. Um, it's the collagen. But so I've always loved Warhol so much, and I always, I think, aspired to or was moved by his ability to combine every realm and every sort of facet of experience into this one kind of output where right. it's not about only the screen prints actually what's incredible is the videos of him taking photos of um whoever the subjects were the superstars or whoever athletes at times and then making that into a into a screen print and then the documentation of that process and i love how um layered that becomes and yeah. what really m- moves me the most is well the drawings he has the most amazing hand but the videos and the and the tv and I was um, perusing in depth the film archives because for my show there in 2020, I'm going to do a lot of film. Mm-hmm. And I um, I think film and painting, are can for me at least, I, mean, I, I, I hesitate to call my film work film. My video work feels painterly in the sense that at times it you're layering or making decisions that feel sort of like the same process when you're making com- compositional decisions in painting. Yeah, they're painterly. Yeah, and his videos have a have so much humor to them, and they're they're so deadpan. He's hysterically funny. His yeah. deadpan sense of humor, his eye roll, his sarcasm is incredible, um, and his love of fashion and advertising, and his um, his um, he doesn't step back from the mundane, or he doesn't um, he he embraces the banal, and he is like he would be such an influencer if he was around now. Like yeah. he would be like, well, he was, yeah, but he, he would be, he, he was without that. He's, he's down for the advertorial element. He, and the last year of his life, he was walking runway shows in Japan. Mm-hmm. I just love how non pretentious that is. There's no holding himself in high esteem as he's above anything. His of course, and of course he is. He's the, the most revered and incredible artist. And, yeah, but and he came every- from a really blue collar situation where he was selling soup door to door to make money for his mother and then immediately became this incredible this 
um, established illustrator and was like, I'm not going to just do fashion illustration. I'm going to be a star. And I just, I, I love his whole, um, I mean, so actually the show is about the book America mm-hmm. and the book um, America. I love his writing style. It's very stream of consciousness. It's very unfiltered. He says what he thinks, even if it's petty, he says what he's thinking and it could be um, accidentally super profound. But yeah. everything he says has this, this like prosaic way where it's relatable. It's very America. It's very like quote unquote American dream. And, Throughout, he's talking about how American Americans are um, an immigrant um, party. Like we're we're all about each other, each other's um, just being open to each other's story and each other's background. So I, j'adore. Yeah, I was really excited when I saw that you posted a picture about mm-hmm. the Warhol because when I saw your work for the first time, I. Th- it felt Warholian, you know, like I felt like there was wow, I'm, that, I'm, that vibe to it. And it, I think, Appreciate you know, that. part of the genius of him too, is that he wanted to reflect culture and popular culture and what makes people like the things they like. And, but, but he was a real mirror. Like he, he let it wash over him. He did everything. I think, and I think there's a self-deprecating um, beauty to that because if you're going to critique society or culture or, you know, um, the, the, you know, the, film scene or the music scene or whatever it is because he would participate in all of those if you're going to critique it without participating in it then you're just pointing a finger and saying look how problematic that or those people are but right. in in fact he was such he was criticizing or critiquing or satirizing and celebrating at the same time um realms of culture that he was a participant in he was right. making light of or um letting us into the world of um, underground music, drugs, and um, you know the superstars, and he was talking about wanting fame while actually wanting fame right. or having fame, and so he was always um, the self awareness and self deprecating way of um, being critical in a real in layman's terms, in a way, yeah. and um, about oneself and one's own desires within an American context. I think is so advanced. It's there's no um, like protective blanket or armor of of um criticality where he's like hiding behind something to protect himself it's so open isn't it funny because people think he's so guarded like people don't don't know warhol yeah just think oh he was this guy who just was aloof and pretended to give answers that he didn't care about or what i love is that he could he could flip-flop between answers because that is so much more true to the actual human condition right, right. than then sticking to something which is almost political by yeah. saying, um, this is my spiel. I'm going to stick with it. I think there's a quote where he says, um, I think, the, I think the reporter says to him, you say everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. He's like, I'm sick of that line. Now I'm saying everyone will be famous in 15 minutes. And he <laughs> just switches it up. And I right. appreciate that. I like that. He's, he's very nonchalant and, um, I, I, so I loved watching his the TV shows, the the quick, you know, Warhol's fashion, and I I was really interested in um, the aesthetic of it, but also just the the cuts and the way that it's edited, and and then how he has all his celebrity friends on there, and they're yeah. just saying nothing in particular, and it's beautiful. So I'm really excited to work more with film and work video, um, inspired by him. Yeah, I've only seen a little bit of your video stuff. What I've found I'll show you a bit online, later. but I think I. I get the vibe of what <laughs> I th- it's actually funny. I think that my video work is so important to to under I mean I want to say to understanding the paintings because obviously you can take it as you will. It's up for interpretation by anybody and if if 
the paintings seem kind of like one way or one dimensional at first glance. For me, when you see them in the in the context and the installation of an exhibition, because I think a lot about showmanship, yeah. showwomanship, um, the video will com- completely alter. I think the perception of the paintings, which is so important because sense of humor is, is so much more apparent and the tone of um, fake seriousness um, and the self-deprecating sense of humor, I think comes through once you see the video. So in my exhibition right now, you walk through the space and you see the paintings and you're like, that's cool. And then you um, descend the staircase and then you see the video work, which is a two channel um, video um, displayed on two Hanterax vintage monitors mm-hmm. um, with a, an incredible score by um, Loka Rabek, Croatian Amor. And um, it's a very unsettling video. I have um, half arm of the cast is my friends, people that I also painted, mm-hmm. people that I've been working with, friends of mine that have been in my work or in my video work for years. Um, and then it's Craigslist people. Oh, really? That's the combination. <laughs> And they're, I had them dancing to no music um, and repeating this poem I wrote, which is a compilation of my own writing um, or my own tweets at times and then some Trump quotes out of context, mm-hmm. which if you know, you know, but if you don't, you just, you don't think twice about the Trump quotes. They're not political. They just are ridiculous. Right. But there's like an emptiness to it. They're sort of just repeating these things to you and it could be, and they're in front of a yearbook looking blue background. Yeah. So they could be saying things in a audition sort of context. They could be, it could be an infomercial. It could be a dating app website. It's, it's so unclear what these, what this group of diverse people are together. Why have they, why have they congregated? What are they talking about? But that with music sort of feels for some reason you accept it. Yeah. Like how music can make anything, any commercial can become really sad if there's, little violin moment or really happy if there's upbeat like you can you can control the perception of anything by adding a soundtrack so anyways this is a really unsettling video it's funny but it's uncomfortable it's awkward it's this forced creepy creepy normalcy where everyone's acting just fine and that's why it's um that's what's unsettling about it it's this performed normalness and then when you walk back up the stairs and see the paintings a second time you're like "Hmm." like, oh that smile is not just a glowing smile right. it's actually about the performance of that smile or posing for a photo or um in the greater sense posing for a normal life mm-hmm. um the performance of of getting along of following the rules of of um participating in the coded um prescribed rules of how to participate in human nature without without breaking the rules that were designated to you and um, worst case scenario, falling into abject chaos because, like, what happens if you don't say I'm fine when someone asks how you are? Right. You know, yeah. we 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 sort of don't want to find out, and we avoid um, the misbehaving in that way. You know, you don't um, walk into someone's house without wiping your shoes and leave footprints all over the floor. Right. You might be othered if you, um, you know, don't cover your mouth when you sneeze, or if you are like crying or bleeding in public. Yeah, which is why the my sculptures have Kleenex built into them. Just <laughs> oh, in case. is that why? Yeah, it's it's about the idea that um, in order to participate, in order to um, for things to run smoothly within a society where we um, have an unspoken contract to um, follow these rules that we're socialized to follow from mm-hmm. when we're 
when we're kids. Don't talk to strangers. Don't punch or rape people in public mm-hmm. right now. Um, and, you know, if you if you were to break those rules, there still are these, like, the places that you are designated to break the rules are, like, bathrooms, behind closed doors. Right. Here's a Band-Aid. Um, if you're bleeding, you can cover it up. Here's Purell. If you're dirty, you can be purified and then be absolved and be allowed back into this um, this coded contract where you're okay again you're fine <laughs> and so uh, I love the genericness of like a Walgreens aisle yeah. where it's like these are all the tools that you can use to participate in being a normal <laughs> person again right you know like smile wave hi yeah. everyone's fine and so I, I like the idea of um, providing those gentle implications mm-hmm. within a gallery setting where it's like if you walk into a hospital and there's Purell you know you're supposed to you're it's implied you should purify or, yeah. or sanitize your hands if you um you know are in a bathroom and there's a a hand dryer blow thing it's implied that maybe you want to dry your hands so you don't walk out there like dripping right um and there's these implications i guess like a welcome mat you know welcome but actually wipe your shoes so that you don't sully up our indoor um cleanliness with yeah. your outer impurity and so i think that same thing can be translated to our fear of the other or um, xenophobia. Yeah. Even in a gendered way. I mean, it's, I don't want to get into gender and this show is not about that. Um, but, you know, there's so much sanitizing of like the female bodily experience. There's so much right. sanitizing of just of, of ethnic foods for the white audience, you know, like a less spicy version of this pad thai or whatever it yeah, is. Yeah. Like we have to we co- constantly sanitize in order to participate, in order to um, for things to go swimmingly. Right. And so what happens, there's always this threat just below the surface that things could unravel if we didn't follow the rules. Well, it feels like that's even more. The tension of the it. Tension the tension of potential that now potential is, tension. is heightened yes. to a, an extreme point. And that's what I'm really interested in. And I think the video is what really hammers that home because you see in the eyes of these, like the, the combination of the Craigslist people and my friends who don't know each other, but they're looking at the camera like, we're getting along just fine. But it's this strained performance. Yeah. And um, a lot of the shots, you know, somebody will be speaking this monologue that I wrote. And then in the second channel, because it's um, two screens, I'll kind of zoom in on someone in this awkward moment where they're shuffling between these strangers and they're like adjusting their pants. And there's yeah. like this weird flash of sadness before they look back up and smile at the like camera. Like the real moment. Yeah. But the thing but is, it feels but different. the performative part is also real because we are performing constantly. Right. So both are real in a sense. It's like this. Wow. My coffee just <laughs> <laughs> boom. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's good. It made me think a little bit too of um, prescription drug commercials, mm-hmm. which yes. are the, worst man those things are they make you feel just I always something. think about those i always and, think about using that um that method to advertise something else right like just like how because you don't think of it as soon as you see the the logo of whatever the drug is you're like oh, okay it's blue sky green grass mm-hmm. uplifting music somebody lifting their child or grandchild up in the air three-quarter so, smile yeah you know? <laughs> do you ever see that uh, grizzly bear video which one? I think it's for, is it called four weeks or two weeks or something? I don't know. The Do one like where their smiles just get bigger and bigger. I don't know. Who made it? I don't know. Well, afterwards. Okay, I'll check it it's out. It's amazing. But I, I have a lot of, a lot of my video work does use the um, tactics of advertising mm-hmm. because I think it actually, in, in a, maybe inspired by Warhol or maybe even Kuhn's way at times, why would you not tune in to the thing that is 
utilized to sell us things. Like there are teams of humans that gather around a board table scientifically picking apart what parts of the of human desire they can they can target to sell a product why would you not use that in art not i think it's fight or flight you either use it to battle against it or you just say i want to i don't think i'm battling it's more like it's more exploring the these this exists yeah i don't watch tv never have i don't have a tv but i when i do watch tv or like I watch the news on YouTube and stuff. But when I do watch TV, I'm shocked at commercials. I'm in awe. I'm like, what the fuck is this? This is what we're watching. This is how we're being advertised to now. It's either so pornographic, so unrealistic, or it's just so, um, it's so heightened. It's so. It's awful. Thought out. And I, I love, but I love that it exists. And so I think the more you don't watch TV, then when, when you tune into it, you are in absolute shock. So I love to tune into that and use those, those um those tropes like i'll make videos where the music will change from happy to inspiring to sad and ominous and it will just change the people will be saying something that's completely irrelevant like a poem or something and all my poetry that i that i kind of cobbled together for these videos is mostly overheard sentences misheard um things one-liner things i thought of that could have been a tweet but actually just were inputted into this street like long form anonymous sort of infinite scroll poem my phone is filled with that in my notes but um when you pair any sentence that anybody speaks with with the background music and they're looking at the camera and they're like hi offer ending soon call now (laughs) and then they say you you really do you are accustomed to reading those signifiers, whether it's a font choice or the tone of voice, it's just the authority of somebody advertising to you is something mm-hmm. that we pick up on and we we our ears perk up and we're like, what should I what should I buy? What prescription medicine should I right. start popping? I know, it's crazy. It's it's become part of I guess if you know, you grow up watching that stuff, it just becomes part of the fabric of your brain. It's like Completely. okay, in between this narrative story that I'm really into, I'm gonna get three minutes of that. It is crazy. I hate commercials. I hate commercials, but if I think I'm looking for that, it, it's fun. But, but when you said you like them, but you hate them, I think that duality is really part of your work, it seems, yeah. as a whole. Yeah, I think a lot of the, um, whether it's images or whatever it may be that I seem to be criticizing in a way, I'm also celebrating, mm-hmm. just maybe for its visual language, maybe for its... You know, even when I'm looking at that matzo box, it's it's I've painted matzo boxes before, made made work with that kind of food, and it's not that I I'm making fun of it because I dislike it, but it's not that I love it and I'm celebrating this homage to matzo. It's right. more that look at this set of signifiers, look at these font choices. It's really funny because it does something, and it there's like, like a little man on it. Yeah, he's like <laughs> wearing a chef hat for special chef. No special offer. Wow, I need my glasses. Um. But I think that there's a lot of um, beauty to be found there. And beauty, you know, asterisk beauty. I know what you mean. You know, it could be anything. But I think there's a lot of visual promise and interest in advertising language. And it's, in a way, it's human nature. I I completely agree. I mean, I think of symmetry, for example, or compositionally, when you're making a painting, you look at, for example, the way that an advertisement is, is composed or cropped or presented to you and there's like these same with art history there's these golden ratios there's this Mm -hmm. you know in on the news like the bottom lower third or whatever where the infinite scroll of 
unfortunate news is there's a name for that too right well, yeah the learned. lower lower third isn't it or no the, but there's like an actual like a word that describes that oh uh, what is it the, the crawl i forget i just learned it recently how about it's how I about think? scrawl it's like scroll but crawl scrawl that scrawl but then it also sounds like a mm, is that a word already scrawl i don't know i don't know but it could be a dj name DJ I'm not, scrawl. my my news mm. graphic lexicon is weak mm. <laughs> Fair, but um, I think that we, yeah, we are, um, whether it's from growing up on this kind of thing, whether it's from being computer literate, Photoshop literate, or, um, you know, um, cable news literate, cable television literate, we are um, receptive to that sort of, those visuals, and to not use them, or to not make use of them in some way or to disregard them, I think is, is a challenge for me. I, I, I yeah. can't actually. And it's not because I'm so involved in, you know, um, the shopping network that I can't get it out of my mind. It's more that if you, th- I, I can't think of a day of my life that I haven't been faced with some form of um, imagery that was um, intended to attack my <laughs> desires. Right, and right. so it makes sense to apply that um, in well, a way. Do you way. think part of it, because you don't have a TV running all the time, mm. that when you see it, it jumps out at you. Yes. More. You know what I mean? Like when you... I'm so know. shook when I see it because I don't see it very right. often. After 9-11, I was on a steady diet of news for months. Mm. You know? That's just, what I'm like right now and have been for the past two years um, before and post Mueller report. Yeah. But let's not get into that because I'll well, go off. Don't go off. Okay. <laughs> but uh, no, really, I was... Seething. I was I was uh, freaked out, yeah. you know, because I was here for nine eleven. I, oh know. man, that's and crazy. And then there's that. There's so much fear being. Um, oh yeah, toyed I, couldn't with. Cross, I couldn't cross the bridge, the Williamsburg Bridge, without getting nervous. Wow. You know? And yeah. it was, you know, and everyone all of a sudden is like, oh, the, that's when the twenty four hour news cycle really like kicked into high gear because everyone was watching news. Yeah. And I just I watched so much so long that at a certain point I was like, I have to yeah, disengage. I, I can't watch news anymore. That's so crazy that you were here for that. That's so crazy. Yeah. And, and seeing, I mean, it was, yeah. Sorry. It, that it, been a, it has like an, it had an effect. Of course. And then you have to like, at a certain point, you just it's so mythical. It. It's so mythical. And, and, um, it becomes so, such a, I can't imagine it being real in, in someone's eyes, in someone's experience, yeah. because it's something that you see so so many times, like copied and. Um, well, it's like the Kennedy for like my parents. It was the Kennedy assassination, mm-hmm. you know, where they lived through that, like those moments. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, no, totally. And I, and, I was in the uh, I was in a school auditorium in grade school when the Challenger thing happened. This, this is crazy. Yeah, we saw it live. Oh my god! And they were like, "Okay, everyone, let's let's go." We just they just kind of ushered us out of the. But it's but it's crazy what those what those moments do to the way that we consume and the way that we yeah. are controlled a bit more. I just read this book, the Imi- the American pseudo event, by Daniel Borston. It was written in the fifties. Um, I, I might have bought the title. I don't know where it is. Um, it was written in the fifties, but they re released it now, uh, fifty years later, or more than fifty years later. It's um, just a, as poignant. It's yeah, because it's about the news cycle and it's about how um, America's desire and and um, for, for constant news perpetuates itself. It's like tautological in the yeah. sense that news used to be something that you would get once a week, let's say, or 
like, right, right. hear ye, hear ye. This is what happened today. And everybody else, you can go back to your homes and rest assured, or like the king, whatever. And then, you know, politics um, became more and more of a spectacle. Um, let's say around the 50s when television becomes a, a huge element in it. And then there's like the Red Scare and this whole way of communicating where people would create news about news. Like somebody was famous for being famous. And um, he, the pseudo event, as he says, is um, this moment that's not a spontaneous event, which would be the opposite, like a war breaking out or a shooting or a thing that happens. But it's the, it's the planned um, event that signifies something else. So a handshake that signifies peace, oh, right. a, a press yeah. conference that signifies here, I'm about to tell you some news. Um, uh, it's like a PR stunt. It's like a, an opening of a restaurant or hotel to tell you that the restaurant and hotel is cool, but it wasn't yet because it hadn't opened. So it's like yeah. this thing that, that um, makes true itself. It's like a self-fulfilling sort of tautology, essentially. Right. But so basically the desire for news creates news about news or news about lack of news, or news about the news about the lack of no news. Like it's so now we have. I mean, this is in the fifties. He's talking about how the news cycle becomes something that is morning, noon, and night. And then if there was a press conference where there wasn't something interesting said, there's a bunch of people that are philosophizing over why there was nothing said. And now yeah. look at this. What we now have it's now. like when you choose I mean, to dip in. I need it per second. I need it in a cubist way from like seven different perspectives. <laughs> I need it all the time. Cubist and man. I'm trying to figure it out. I'm trying to decode the Mueller report myself. I mean, it's gotten to a point where, but not only about news, this is how we consume. Um, we need constant variety and um, different versions of the thing. We want all perspectives at once. We want it all the time, 24-7 and beyond. And I think it really, um, it's impossible to even imagine the time without that kind of constant um, transparency or seemingly transparency, even into each other's lives, right? Yeah. It's like this constant flow. And so I don't know if I have a disdain for that or if I'm just, I don't know anything else. It's but fascinating. I, we have to think about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that book is really interesting. That's so, I mean, not to go back to that, but that Cubist news idea is so interesting. Like who knew <laughs> Picasso was predicting the, the shape and the fracturing of how information would be hitting I mean, it's even Cubist that, like saying how Warhol um, was taking a photo, having his photo taken while taking a photo, creating a painting or a drawing of the photo and then a screen print of it. And then that screen print exists in a grid. That's super Cubist. Yeah. You know, and that comes from like Velasquez and Manet mm -hmm. and people who were like fracturing the picture plane yeah. and all that. So I'm sure that for you is like gold I think, as I mean, far as like. That's why I think it's interesting where I have um, the video where there's um, one character will be in the video and then in the painting. Yeah. And then you'll see them in different um, perspectives and you can sort of piece together your understanding of that. When did, you, when did you start making objects? Like how did you. Sculptures. Yeah. How did you get to that point? Because um, painting is such a, you know. Yeah. Well, I was in a Photoshop class and I made a Photoshop of a Jewish star of bacon. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to make that as a sculpture. And I worked for an artist. That's how it's done. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I just made that and like I learned that and it really just took off. I also made um, a, a Photoshop of a Fendi baguette. Mm -hmm. Don't really want to get into the bread bag stuff because I feel like a broken record because I've talked about it a lot. Maybe no, not necessarily to anybody that's listening to this, but yeah. I made some sculptures that were like um, hyper-realistic sculptures of bagels and baguettes. Yeah, and I've seen yeah, so I, I, my first sculptures were just me physicalizing um, Photoshop collages I had made in like 2012 mm -hmm. or earlier. And um, then they sort of just took off. And so I was um, insight 
it, it was incited to make more, I guess. And um, then actually my first show, I only showed sculpture and these sex wing sculptures, like, I think, is there one? Oh, no. These sex, sex wing sculptures that looked like like a Chanel purse, for example. It was quilted and it had a Chanel logo mm-hmm. and then um, the chains. So at first it's sort of believable in the sense that you you believe this could be, because of the authority of the logo, yeah. you are happy to accept that this could be, maybe Chanel made a sex swing. Mm-hmm. But then you sort of realize when, that, that it's, when you realize it's a sculpture and it's a joke, you sort of are faced with your own gullibility. Is that a word? Right. When, when it comes to how branding can um, sort of legitimize any thing you see. If yeah. there was a Starbucks logo on um, a tractor, you'd be like, oh, I guess Starbucks is... serve s- coffee on that? Yeah, I guess they're having it <laughs> as a pop-up in a farm and they're going to do a little <laughs> like planting first. But, you know, you, you, you're... Or like a sex toy. You know, if you saw like a Chanel sign on a sex toy, you're like, okay, I mean, kinky, but sure, I'll accept it. And so there was a, there's a real... Um, there was a there was a joy to that for me because it was really funny. But my first show was all sculpture and video, and I don't think there was any painting because mm-hmm. I was nervous about showing paintings because um, it's so easy to think you need to keep working on it, especially in terms of figuration. Uh, it's chops. so yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I've I'm gonna say that I've greatly improved because I can see it when I look at a painting from like eight months ago. I'm mm-hmm. just faced with what I would do better to this better quote unquote this time. I don't think painting should be about technical achievement, but it's hard for it not to be when you're starting. So I was always painting, but um, I was always nervous to show figurative work because it's so individual. It's so it's like you're at, you're responsible for every single part of it, you know, whereas sculpture, especially with mold making, because all my sculptures are, um, I make a mold with silicone, mm-hmm. cast it in urethane, hand paint it in oil, and assemble it. But there's like you get the help of the mold, so it's not re- like it's mediated. It's mediated yeah. in a sense. It's sort of copy and pasty, um, and that's fine. Part, a lot of it is my hand, but the oil painting part of it, the stacking and the dripping and all of the things that make it final. But a lot of it, you have this crutch, and same with the video. There's this crutch of the camera. Yeah. There's the if I shot a video and everyone in it looks great and is being funny and then I just cobble it together in an editing software by the way not just cobbling very hard to do I spent so long editing my last video in, in Premiere it's learned so much work, had to yeah. audio master it my god so much work but um there's still that crutch there's still that um um you can off you can sort of load off some of the weight of the final product onto onto the medium but with painting especially with figurative painting i feel this huge responsibility like i'm responsible for every brush stroke every choice the compositional choice and how it's done so it was really intimidating to start showing painting so i think that's why i went off on a sculpture yeah well it's strong that you didn't uh you didn't bail out from it because obviously there was a lot of interest in what you were doing sculpturally so you didn't sort of flee from that thinking, well, that's too much ownership of exactly how everything's done. Mm-hmm. I'll just put that aside and just work on film and sculpture. So I did film, I did that for um, my first few shows. And it's funny when I speak of, like, when I say for a long time or earlier work, I'm literally speaking in Not five too. years. <laughs> but in my, in my little life, I suppose that's long. But I was making paintings and the, my first gallery who I love so much, Sebastian Bertrand is my Swiss gallery. Mm-hmm. He reached out to me when I was like 23 and had 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 no you know validation or had never shown any of my paintings. I was making these funny paintings um, that were, I was making one a day of these silly kind of badly proportioned, really quick 
um, self-portraits. And he and I was getting more, um, you know, asks for exhibiting sculpture at the time. But he was like, I want to do a painting show with you. And I was like, how can me? Why? Why? I'm not ready. I'm not good. This is okay if you're sure. But I'm an oversharer and uh, I have no um, sense of timing or waiting. So I was like, sure, let's do it. Uh, (laughs) And so I just pumped out a show and I'm so in, in hindsight, I'm so um, happy that I didn't have any like inhibition because now I would have been much more nervous. Right. But I learned I've been learning in public for like six years, you know. And I look back at that first show that wasn't my first show, my first painting show, and I really like how unachieved they are. They're not, you know, super technically um, adequate. They're not very well done. And I do you but look that, back? They're and great. Think it's refreshing in a way. Or I think they're something- great. I wish I had some of those works. I think they're great because. I um, wasn't. Um, I didn't know how far I could go in terms of technically achieving something. Not to say that I'm like hyper realistic now, but I I can keep going yeah. to a point that I honestly I need. I feel now like I'd like to stop myself and let it be looser, and I'm that's what I'm kind of getting at with my newer work. But I see that when I look at like the first couple shows I did, where there's some ham-fisted stuff in there that I'm like, whoa, man, I was really <laughs> not mastering that. Kind of and how do you feel about it now? Oh, it's it's refreshing. It's right. like, oh, I kind of wish I could get back. It's like, like let's say you were in a band, you know, and the early punkest on, stuff would be the early stuff yeah, when yeah, you didn't yeah. know about how to use the how to use the um, instrument or you were thinking about all wasn't so polished exactly. and all that. Yeah, like I was making nice I was making my first sculptures and paintings in a studio I shared with four people. I didn't even have a desk. I was working on the floor. I had about like twenty, like ten square feet. I literally was sitting on the ground um, with bad quality everything being like, I don't want to, you know, waste money because I like don't have it yeah. on buying too many, you know, large canvases. So I guess I'll paint on this piece of wood I found outside. Like, you know, not like, oh, woe is me. But I wasn't, you know, there wasn't this like extravagant, like I'm going to make a seven foot painting like I am now, or right. I'm like, more is more. Like, let me claim as much space as I can. But at the time I was sort of just experimenting and I want to pat my baby self on the back for, for doing that without being, um, without thinking it through without having any plan in place. I wasn't planning for, you know, for example, any of the things that went, you know, viral-ish to go viral in that way. Nothing was um, planned or um, I had no I had no idea of where things would go. I was just trying stuff. And in, in hindsight, like, you can't get that back. Yeah. And that's the one thing I, w- I really long for is a time to experiment, is, is um, a time without the, the pressure of an upcoming show or, you know, the pressure of something being cohesive with work that you've previously put out or this the body of work having to do with the next one. There was something about being, like, young and unattached and just out of school. That you're just like, uh. And I didn't go to, you know, a school that, like, I didn't go to school in the States, for example, like, I don't know, everyone else went to Yale and persons and stuff. And hey, there he is. <laughs> no shade. But you know, you're you're probably being taught about what it would be yeah, like yeah. and will be like when you have an art career. I'm I'm pretty sure my school was kind of like hobbyist. You'd be and- surprised actually though, but well, in my day, they didn't want to sully your art education with like I'm sure now it's Business much more stuff? careerist and I all think that it stuff, is. I think it is. When I was a student, they wouldn't tell you anything. My assistants and stuff and people that I come into contact with that are students are talking about the career you know element why? of it boom like two hundred thousand of student loans that makes it get yeah real, well real that's quick. i think that's another difference why i feel like i am i'm so lucky is because i went to school in canada my education was like six thousand dollars canadian black <laughs> i don't have that i don't have that <laughs> right so i was able to you know come here and i worked and i was always working so i was like 
working, you know, part to full time. And then I was painting and doing sculptures like in my free time but yeah. I had free time because I wasn't working 12 jobs to pay for my student loans because right. I didn't have them because I went to school in Canada where we have education that's affordable See, slash this free is, this is the, so I Make teach America, Canada. and my a lot of my students ask like, how do I go to New York and do it and mm. nowadays I'm like I don't know it's not easy I don't know I, whenever expensive. I give lectures at schools I'm like I don't know what to tell you guys what we figured out be Canadian be Canadian easy or Swedish but you know, it. it's, it's just, need to do. it's just, yeah, be it's, born in Canada. Just try that. Or, I mean, we should just, um, elect somebody who wants us to be educated. That's not going to happen. I know. Let's not get into it. Um, Jay Inslee, 2020. So you've moved on from that period. So it's too late. So now, now you're going to have to wait until the mid career crisis period yeah. when everything goes quiet and then yeah. you can re it's almost like when you have a kid and then you think to yourself, I'm not really going to have time to go see a movie until I'm retired until he's <laughs> off in college. Until I'm an empty nester. Yeah. I mean, it's hard as a mother of a beautiful Siamese son. It is hard to even paint because he's always meowing at me and he wants me to be constantly paying attention to him when I'm painting. He is on the ground looking at me like meow, meow, mom look at me and then if i walk away from my canvas for one second i come back and he's sitting on the ladder or my stool in front of the painting like waiting i see you were looking at this canvas but what about me and i'm like "Ooh, you're right my beautiful son do you listen to music when you paint i listen to um podcasts and the news <laughs> but I, I, I but you're a music to, fan. Yeah, I listen to music, but at a certain point when you're painting, I paint for so many hours. I paint for like old. from 10 a.m. to 11 p.m. or 1 a.m. sometimes. And so sometimes I listen to music and that's fun. I'm dancing around and I'm having a ball. But sometimes with music and painting, my brain can start overthinking, I don't know, the perils of existence. And it's nice to sort of um, take that and place that. Look, a blue jay. Oh, nice. It's nice to um, be listening to a podcast or stressing out about politics. Um, I do that too. During painting. It so gets you my, out of your... Yeah, and then it's the eye-hand coordination thing can just play out without overthinking the painting part. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, I can get really... I get really... In, I get hyper-focused when I'm painting. Well, if you put on drum and bass, you might paint too fast. <laughs> <laughs> um, I paint... I do paint really fast. Yeah, I've... Well, you, you share some clips. Yeah, I do. Which is impressive. How do you hold the camera and paint like at this. the same time? I can't do it. It's not hard. I try to do it once. That's why the only time I ever post anything, it's me pulling tape off, because then okay. I can actually hold something <laughs> and just pull it. Well, it's not two. You don't need two hands to hold a paintbrush. It's one hand. And then I'm probably already, you know, FaceTiming or maybe texting or tweeting <laughs> or, you know, reading the news while on my phone with one hand and painting with the other. I actually need to be semi-distracted to paint more freely and let my hand do the thing without my brain over I feel like that's overbearing. that's true for a lot of people you know that to that you're not super it's like the, all your eggs in one basket thing it's like if all I'm doing is focusing on this one thing I'll fuck it up so overworked it's like if I'm drawing and I'm drawing on really nice big expensive paper I will I can't do it I I get stage fright and I fuck it up but if I'm drawing on a, a sketchbook or a post-it or like the back of a napkin, free and easy, I'm like, that's a good drawing. That's something I because tell students all the time. Just do the drawings on, you know, don't, because as soon as they get to canvas, as soon as you get to the stretcher, it's like, Ugh. I know. You know, it's really, it is really hard with painting. It's different because you can, you can mess it up and keep going and, and keep adding layers. And right. I, you know, I'll, I'll be working on a painting and then I'll take a photo of it and then go, I don't know, to the, I don't know, to the store. <laughs> to, yeah. to the 
milk store and buy milk, oat milk. And <laughs> but then, um, you know, as I'm walking or as I'm sitting in an Uber or on the subway or something, I'll look at the painting and then I can sort of see it from really far because it's oh, small yeah. on my phone and I can sort of like imagine it. But a drawing, you don't have that. It's immediacy. Like a drawing is about confidence. It's about, um, for the me, moment. it's like immediate. It's not yeah. about, um, you know, a lot of effort. It's actually like just seeing someone's hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think painting, you have more room to mess up because you have more room to keep adding. Um, but I, but I, I think I perform better or I, I want to see what my body does, not let my brain be overbearing. Did you see that Warhol drawing show at Anton Kern? A yeah, couple of years, was yes. it two years ago? Maybe his drawings are my favorite oh thing my God, ever. So Un- unreal. I love his hand so much. He's incredible. It's amazing that the thing that's so frustrating is there's so many, you know, garden variety art viewers who think Warhol is just this untalented hack who just screen prints everything. Yeah, but, but even that, his like his hand was like, I know, but that's, it's always like that. It's always yeah. like, yeah, his hand is an unbelievable, but you can see that. Um, I think as well, even in the screen prints, when you go up to them in person, a lot of them are much more textured and oh, yeah. have this, um, really painty, thick, um, inky situation. And you don't just, get that if you're a non-talented hack you have to right. you have an understanding of and a love for what you're doing i like the uh in the new show so the show we should say is in london oh my show yeah yeah my show is in london it's on now but i don't know when... Does the sculptures in that show feel almost like ted stam paintings in sculptures with they feel like sketchup irl yeah they feel i when i walked into the gallery because i designed those um sculptures so like furniture object benches that are carpeted. Um, I walked into the gallery when they had executed them because they fabricated them. I didn't like carpet them myself. Right. Um, and I was like, wow, this looks a spitting image of the SketchUp. It's crazy. It feels very much like The Sims or something. There's this perfect... <laughs> Remember that. I mean, uh, yeah, I think about that a lot, actually, especially the visuals of my current show because mm-hmm. my current show, the imagery is a little bit different than my previous work, which had a more like... Um, fantastical blue sky papaya kind of right. like beauty in a, a fetishized way kind of yeah um, exotic. yeah like um sort of like iconic iconicified fetishized versions of um you know the uh, milkmaid in a vermeer or mm-hmm. you know but my, my current work is more about n- like normal capital m you know the sims um, Benetton or Gap ad, um, mm-hmm. a yearbook photo from who knows what year. There's this sort of normalcy to it. Yeah. And so when I think about the generic, I think about you know a blue carpet or like a gray carpet and these spaces that you are at once invited and welcomed, but at the same time completely anonymous and othered. So I I carpeted the gallery and Al Means Gallery in London is beautiful. It's a Mercedes, but I wanted it to be a Greyhound. So I, <laughs> so I carpeted it. They're like, are you sure, Chloe? I'm like, yes, we. Oui. <laughs> so I carpeted it with like a dark, bluey, gray, ugly, very basic, generic carpet. And the sculptures are also carpeted in the same. And also the video is on two plinths that are carpeted as well. And I painted some of the walls a really subtle, like manila, beige, because mm-hmm. I wanted it to feel like an office or um, a waiting room or like the DMV or some part, oh, like the office man. in school or just something that's intimate in the sense that you're welcome there. But it's completely um, um, distant, and um, y- you're not being othered or made to feel uncomfortable. But you're aware of your 
like you're a number, like take a number and, yeah. and wait. It's so like sanitized. Ex- ex- well, exactly. And so I think a lot of public interaction is that way. It's like these are spaces of of um, community or um, congregation, but it's not actually um, a place where we can communicate and be real with each other. Because when you get real with each other, and when we actually communicate and open up, then that's when the abject fluids come out. Right. That's when we bleed or jizz or pee or cry. Yeah. And so none of that. These, these none of that. That's Purell. why there's carpet, Purell, paper towel. So you can take a Kleenex and wipe the fluid you may have secreted. And then you can keep on keeping on. But um, I like the idea that um, if you're provided with the a place to sit, you may, like, for example, a museum, there's mm-hmm. a bench. Okay, so you should sit there and contemplate the beauty. Right, I love the one. idea that yeah. there's like a bench in front of the painting. So it's like inciting you to, it's almost like sit down and marvel at the beauty of this painting. Maybe you'll cry. But right. that's not what, that's like the, that's like the first reading, for right, beginner's right. reading. But if you realize that there's Purell and that maybe like you're like, should I jerk off? <laughs> like, am I going to bleed? What kind of weird culty sort of ceremony is going to be done to me? Because if you look at the paintings, there's all people kind of looking at you, but they have hands on each other's shoulders, like sort of like a group photo that was cropped weirdly. Yeah. Like if you had a group photo of you and your friends out at a bar in 2001, and then you cropped everyone out except for yourself for your Facebook photo, and then you just have someone's hand are. severed on your shoulder that remains, and you're smiling, and there's the, someone's ear. It was that kind of cropping. So it's like an individual within a group. It's like you're alone despite being surrounded. It's uncomfortable, too. Yeah, it's like you're alone, even right. though you're with people, um, and but everyone's looking at you. And so there's these moments where someone's hands on someone's knee or arm or elbow, and it's like, is that supportive? Or is that like oppressive? Is that... You know, are you being kept in the whether it's the group or the frame of the painting, or are you being um, oppressed and you know wrangled into um, complacency, or are you being supported? And it's that double reading, which is why the title of my show is not that we don't. It's like a double reading. Mm-hmm. It's the potential for um, reading in any situation, the nuances that could that we are trained to understand for survival as humans. Like you have to understand, especially women walking into a room, we have to be able to read like if someone's going to aggress upon us or not. Right. Like is a smile aggressive or is it really a warm thing? And smiling is bearing God, that, teeth. It's got to be exhausting. I mean, it, life is exhausting. Or you just get used to it, I guess. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Becomes- let me get into that. But <laughs> I just think the human, but human interaction in every way is that, you know, we're saying, hi, how are you? And it's a, it is a performance. Yeah. And I'm not saying it shouldn't be. But, you know, it's, it's what allows us to exist. Right. But when you really think about what happens when those boundaries are broken and when, you know, you take away the ought to, should, and, and how we um, have all agreed in a non-spoken way to, to not do fucked up shit. Right. If you take that away, what remains is like underneath the surface just hovering there is potential violence. Which is the animal behavior. Yeah. Right? Violence or so- sex or food. Social is, I mean, being social creatures, we're just we're predators. putting up walls against, you know, just eating, sleeping, and procreating, basically. Exactly. And so and killing. I think about what Kleenex is for. It's for, like, mopping up any residue from those um, <laughs> inclinations we have. Yeah. And um, same with Band-Aids. It's like, think about it. Blood is so abject. It's so gross. And we can't look at it, and we don't want to see it. I mean, obviously, if you're, like, a gore seeker, you can watch whatever you want. And I think that's where like, you know, the need to watch violent movies and it's just sort of the thrill of this abject thing. But generally it's like, cover it up and yeah. peeing, go do it behind closed doors. We all do it, but it's weird that we, yeah, if like an accident happens, someone covers it immediately. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, even though everyone wants to look at that train wreck, you know what I mean? Yeah. We're the, it's like the, 
eye is drawn to the cruelty because there's um, this, I don't know, magnetic nature to the inevitability of death. But I think about also, if anything, but also in a sex way too, where it's like there's always the possibility, if you like, I don't know, if everyone got stuck in an elevator for two weeks, at some point people were gonna, are going to have to like cannibalize, um, have sex, and like poo and pee and stuff. I don't yeah. know. I don't know why I think an elevator. I think about like those kind of situations all the time. <laughs> it's funny because I was thinking elevator before because I thought some of the video and some of that installation gives you the oh my God, it's discomfort an idea. of an elevator. Yes, yes. And the music. <sighs> yeah, yes. I, and, uh, I don't want to bring this up. I, I watched a special recently too on 9-11 it just happened to be on and I was watching it and they were Do you talking. Do talk about it, dude? Like you, you know, what's that? I'm all, if you want to like talk about your experience, yeah, this, like, this, this, it's this, a t- it was a tough time. Like, no, it. no, not at all. I mean, it's just psychologically, it, it had a big oh, effect anyway. on people, but um, they were, whenever the thing happened, that the plaza was still playing Muzak, which was the creepiest part of it. I think. Dude. Whoa. Yeah. That's like very Titanic. Like the ship is still going down. Yeah. Like, have you ever seen <laughs> Dial Nine One One History? No. Johan Grimnopres's video. No. About hijacking, but it's set to like the ending is so powerful because it's just clips of hijackings and stuff going on, and it's it's playing "Do the Hustle" like the disco song. No. Which is this the is most so unnerving, creepy combination. Yeah. Yeah. That stuff is. Yeah. Off-putting. Ambience. So elevators have that weird... Right, because... Like, have you ever felt comfortable in an elevator? No. I mean, you're just... Even if you're alone, you're you're waiting for something like it to open up to... The doors to open up to some other world of strangers that you have to awkwardly smile and nod at but not make eye contact for too long. Ma- no imagine way. making eye contact for more than two seconds with a stranger <laughs> in an elevator. You're like, oh, God. Okay, right. we're either going to literally have sex or kill each other. And it's weird. It's just you're just in... You're just in a room. You're just in a room. And you're facing a door and like you're moving up and down instead of forward and back. It's a very it's very weird, but there's such discomfort, but it's normalized discomfort. Yeah. And I think that a lot of our experiences, when you think about it, literally I don't even smoke weed and this is my brain. Like I'm always <laughs> thinking about how bizarre the performance of what we're doing is. If you turn on the lights and turn off the music at a at a club, mm-hmm. people are just kind of awkwardly dancing and just like, moving what? around yeah. and sort of like weirdly preying on each other and trying to hydrate one another here can i get you another drink mm-hmm. it's a weird thing or like i was in a dance i do a lot of dance class i was in a dance class one time and we were doing like a follow the leader kind of like caribbean circle mm-hmm. <laughs> and like it's a bunch of like white women in lululemon like tight yoga clothes right. like kind of doing this like circle where we're all hands on each other's shoulders following the leader around and then the music turned off and the dance instructor was like keep going and so mm. all you hear is a sound of like feet Oh, that's and like, and like women not looking at each other, but looking in no particular direction, disco lights and like all of these white women, right. <laughs> like spandex in a circle. I'm like, what? This is the weirdest without music. Immediately. It's this weird cult, weird thing. Like if you were David Attenborough looking down, you'd be like, and now the young Caucasian hetero women are working Dance in a in circle, circle to change the shape of their bodies. Like <laughs> what is, to better find a mate. It's like the, and then the music comes back on and you're like, do the hustle. So I just think about that shit all the time, but well, I think it, about how paintings can be that as well. Yeah. That's a theme. Like the whole music sound and how it affects things but all my exhibitions always have a sound always have either a sound piece or a video where there's music but because i never show in america 
no one knows that unless you've been to a show in like Canada or Switzerland or Paris. And there's something nice because I always show animations in my shows. Oh, amazing. So there's sound that I collaborate it with cha- musicians. It changes the... It totally changes the dynamic. And But it's it's one thing if you have like a soundtrack that's ethereal and kind of beautiful, kind of like the one that was to your, you know, your dual channel. Like I saw a video with the sound on it. It sort of sounds like... It's kind of sad, captivating. It's happy, sad. It's yeah. like a It's a happy, sad synth that kind of could be a commercial that was slowed down or rewound or something. Yeah. But it's also... It's like everything's fine, but it's also kind of off. But it's not hyper aggressive. Like I've no. been into some installations like video art to where it's some crazy... Sound that just unnerving, and you. I feel don't like, like you shock have to for the sake of, of shock. I like being in, inviting people to. You know, f- I've seen a lot of um, photos of people at my show that are sitting on the ground, and I mm-hmm. loved that. Yeah, you know, I made. I had a show in in Paris at Almine as well, where the video room was um, fake grass on the ground, and so I love the idea of inviting people to sit down and actually take it in. So I wouldn't want to scare them away with super aggressive music or any yeah. uh, visuals. That's not my. That's not my style to begin with. I do like it to have some sort of, there's always beauty. There's always some sort of an invitation. But I do like the idea that in that beauty and in that, you know, um, non-dissonant, um, agreeable music and enjoyable sound or, or beautiful people saying weird things, that's where the tension is because you're you're drawn to it and you want to look at it. It doesn't hurt your eyes, but it's it, it actually it's so like assuages your eyes. It's so, in, it's so inviting and and um kind of perfect in a way mm-hmm. there's this like airbrushy way um and people are looking at you and smiling in a video that that's where the discomfort would be because you're like wait what where am i why am i why am i why are they saying this to me what is being sold to me or right. um what does this say about how i read into it's like a push pull not just a push push yeah I, I, you know i'm not into shock for shock's sake yeah i think it's more interesting when there's um yeah, like a dynamic. I think dualities. I, that came up earlier. Yeah, I think it's a yeah. big part of it. Yeah, exactly. Like for there's one painting in my show where it's called Polysemic Primavera, mm-hmm. and it's three people, um, kind of in an embrace, and one person's looking, one person has their back to you, and then one person is looking at you. And at first, it could be like this tender moment of hugging, and I've seen a lot of people posting it like International Sibling Day or like <laughs> Women's Friendship Day, like hug your friends, like hug your sisters, and I'm like, cool that you read it that way. Yeah. But then I think you can also look at it like one person's in this um, almost cult-like embrace, and they're like, get me out of here. Or they're like, we're telling each other secrets. What are you, the viewer, looking at? Look yeah. away. And so I love the idea of, same thing with it being in an elevator. If you stare at someone, it's either like you're staring at them, or you're like, look away. What are you staring at? And there's yeah. this silent um, questioning or othering that can happen in such short time with human eye contact. And I yeah, think and a painting no can win. do that too. There's no win with the elevator thing. <laughs> because either you're in there pretending to not make it a big deal. Like, I want to write that down. There's no winning in, in elevators. There's That's no a nice winning. quote. You cannot go in there and just be normal. <laughs> You're either purposely what's normal? being normal. Yeah, exactly. That's what's normal. What's normal is trying to be normal. Right. That's what's so ambiguous is that attempting to be normal is the norm. We are all perpetually in a state of attempting to perform normalcy. And that in itself, when you think about it, is kind of stressful because it's a performance and we're all trying to do it. It's the ritual of being a socialized people. Completely. What happens if we're not? Is that what dancing is? No. No, I think we're animals when we're eating, sleeping and having sex. I so think those are like the animal times. When like the, the flood waters start to rise and shit goes crazy. Right. I think that's when people turn right. into animals. 
Oh, God. I guess you were here for Sandy, too. <laughs> I was. Oh, man. <laughs> You've been through a lot. My Canadian ass has been through nothing. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> no, but it's true. I mean, like, you know, that's what I love those moments of like crazy pandemonium when nothing bad happens. But like, for example, in Miami during our puzzle a few years ago, and it was really flooding. And so you see people having to take off their shoes and help oh, people yeah. over over sidewalks and yeah. And, you know, or freeze last year, it was like, what, 102 degrees and everyone's freaking out. Freeze, or fire festival, for example. Like, these are the things oh, where, yeah. like, a controlled mess, not controlled, like, a lack of control, but everything's kind of okay. Yeah. Um, the chaos that can ensue, then you really see human nature play out. And it's so fascinating. We are so drawn to that. See, so you kind of, like, you, it's the duality of feeling almost, you know, grossed out by the animalistic human nature possibilities but also intrigued by it at the same time yeah i don't even know if it's if it's grossed out it's more we we hesitate to allow it in we Mm -hmm. we 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 go to a lot of lengths to maintain our composure as the human rational animal Mm -hmm. and um when it comes out when we when we didn't plan for it like for there's planned places to let loose abstract painting for example or or (laughs) dancing or whatever um, there's there's places where you're supposed to unleash your humanity and or animalistic tendency and go wild, but go wild. For example, even the even the verbal yeah. description, you know, it's it's like a designated moment to animal print Comic Sans font. Go wild, <laughs> but um, in the moments where we weren't planning on letting loose, so to speak, and something unexpected happens, and then we are compelled to, you know do something we didn't plan to do outside of our outside of our um carefully curated facade of right. how I act in public. Um I think that's that's some really interesting that's why Kirby enthusiasm is so great. You're like, yeah. oh God, you're breaking the social code. Exactly. Oh there you go. But, but we reality, all think about it. There's a reality to it too though, because if people were just going around having se- procreating, having sex all day, it wouldn't be special. No, it's it's really important that we Like if we dance twenty four hours a day, it wouldn't be special. Well so that's why going out to dance Maybe we so. maybe that I, I could dance 24 hours. I love dancing. <laughs> but um, no, I don't think it's even about being special. It's like we couldn't get anything done. Things have to work. Yeah, society is, is it, it's effective. Or yeah. It wouldn't have been... I'm not like pro-anarchy. This is not, it's not, you know, oh, yeah, like yeah. We, we can imagine it. And there's moments where there's a, it's great to get escape from um, the, the carefully, um, the careful existence of, of following the rules, you know. But I, it is funny to think about what is our natural state? What would we do? should there not be rules right now? Yeah. And um, a lot of it is a lot, there's a lot of liquids there, <laughs> which is why. Hydration. There's Kleenex. Yeah. yeah. And I think we, I think a lot of it is, is I think back to the, the reason why I have the Purell and stuff in the show, but also what I've been thinking about lately, a lot of the um, fear of dirt or mm-hmm. impurity or unclean, uh, whether that's the fluids we may exert or we may secrete, should we, accidentally lose control of our like bladder or veins or tear ducts. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you can look at that in a macro way where a lot of the structures that are in place, government, society, the, the rules as they are, um, like those keep us from um, large scale abject um, chaos mm-hmm. in a larger sense in the, in the way that, for example, like 
religion exists to keep people in order and it does a great it did a great job of doing that. It also did a great job of creating every war ever. Wars. <laughs> yeah, but it also has gives people in a in a otherwise like meaningless, nihilistic, chaos filled life of tragedy and structure. And, right. Yeah, there's structure, there's yeah. belief and there's something that like Judeo Christian beliefs like there's some moral code that yeah. allows you to maybe go about your life and think there's meaning so you do good you maybe do good things i don't know i wouldn't know but hypothetically and i same thing with for example trusting in government or justice like we trust that there is a system a good the good guys the the the, the, the call the cops <laughs> like it's gonna be right. okay if you call the cops and trust in injustice which i think we're being faced with the fact that that may not be in, yeah. in our political climate right. but let's not get there but um you know, and I think, you know, hygiene, um, and Roland Barthes talks about this in mythologies. A lot of my titles in the, in the paintings come from um, that amazing um, collection of texts. But he talks about the way that soap is advertised as a savior mm-hmm. in an almost warlike um, prose where he's likening soap to um, a, like an army. So soap will penetrate and destroy the enemy of dirt and free you, liberate you from um, the clutches of evil, which are the grease of on your plate, your plate which was once white and pure and now is covered in dark, brown, bad, dirty grease. And you can clean it up and absolve that plate shining now. You know, like that whole... Must that, have been pretty funky. <laughs> it's a dirty plate. <laughs> it's a bad plate. Yeah. That plate's been a I'm bad, bad that plate. plate. <laughs> but um, that same mentality is sort of how we the same trust you place in the military that's going to free you from the enemy um and protect you and protect you and and, and restore order again and that same uh, trust is something we're supposed to place in the religion you know if you confess or you follow these rules you'll be your impurities will be um absolved and you can um you know go to heaven or whatever and um i think we have that way of trusting in some greater force but that's how that's how like the world would have us follow the rules so that we don't, um, you know, fall into complete disarray and, you know, go wild. We're complicated. Animal print. We're complicated creatures. Yeah. So that's what your art is tapping into. Yeah. <laughs> is that your next show? That's just what I'm thinking. Well, that's what my that's what I was thinking about in this show. I don't know if it's if it's that clear, but it doesn't matter. It's what I was working through, which is why for me what's interesting is not the moment of disarray, but it's the moment of the canny moment, like not the uncanny, the moment of order, the moment of where everything is fine and everyone is getting along and everyone's smiling or about to smile or just smiled. Like the moment of um normal normalized performance of the everyday um, A-OK, generic status quo stuff is to me, there's so much um, ambiguity and uh, comedy in that that I would like to focus on that stuff. Mm -hmm. And... Like when I was younger, I would just when I, when Google was a th- new thing. Is that possible? Mm-hmm. How old am I? I would just Google random letters like blah, 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 on the keyboard and just see what random fo- random <laughs> like right, right. what random photos I could find just because I was interested in what photos existed on the internet. Yeah, you know, I guess that's what Reddit is or whatever. Like we're right, just right. here for the. There's so much stuff. We just sift through this normal stuff. Yeah. It's, the normal stuff is so weird. <sighs> normal. Yeah. What is it? Um, but yeah, that's what, that's what that show is about. So we'll see. <laughs> but I think it'll be interesting to bring that and then the Warholian 
um, That's so celebration of of you know like more uh, like like blam America iconic celebrity like all of that kind of like in your face um, aesthetic stuff I think that will be a really fun combination um, for the Warhol show that yeah. I'm doing so when is that that's 2020 and then you October show October 2020 which like wow what's gonna where are we gonna be oh, it's yeah. like a weeks before the election um, that's but before exciting. that I have a show I have a show at the, at the Herning Museum in Denmark in um at the Hart Museum in Herning in Denmark mm-hmm. in September, so it's I have to make that show over the course of this summer. This September, yeah. So that's that's a show. And then your show up now Cl- closes May eighteenth. May eighteenth, and then people, you're active on social media. I am. You share. Thanks for noticing. Yes, I do. Well, it's. The best way at this point I can see your show. Yeah, in London, exactly. I'm not in London, so exactly. I'm very gratuitous in the in the sharing of of the show and my life making the show. Why not? Absolutely no reason why not to. So I do it. I I feel like talking to you today was as fun as I thought it was going to be. Wow, I really I hope that's I hope I that mean, means yeah. it was fun. It was <laughs> very like, fun. It's just was... as not fun. <laughs> Did not surpass expectations. This went fun. just like I thought it was going to go. <laughs> oh, not again. <laughs> no, no, I just thought it was going to be really fun to talk to you. So. That's great. I appreciate great. that. So people can check out your stuff on your name is Instagram. And then... Yeah, well, my name is Instagram. There's an underscore at the bottom because somebody else has at Chloe Wise. Son of a... I like her. I know her. Oh, okay. Which cool. is weird. <laughs> it's my mom. She got, she's like, I'm taking... I'm That's taking my name? The, yeah. The domain name is mine. No, I actually met the girl that is the other Chloe Wise. Oh, she really? lives in London. And she's, we're the same age. She's lovely. She came to your show? No, no, no. Oh, I, for nice. years, we've like followed each other on all of the social medias, Facebook, MySpace, all of that. And one time, I was at a music festival in London. And I, like we, we did a triple... Like oh my oh, god! Really? And we, just, that's yeah, you, that's you, and so we like ran to each other. We were like Chloe Wise, <laughs> what's up? We hugged, and then we were like, we don't have that much to say to each other, but I like you. I feel <laughs> like I know you, but and then I'm just like, give me the damn you Instagram handle, dude. Right? Give it to me. Give but it up. It's also fine. It's fine. I thought it would have been really funny if she showed up at your show and she's like, I'm here. Actually, it's rude that she did it. Right. <laughs> Come on, Chloe. Come on. Get but um, no, uh, yeah, you can check out that on there if you must. Oh, man, I'm definitely going to see that Warhol show. That's exciting. Yeah, that'll be exciting. It's me and four other artists. Nice. So it's really going to be fun. And um, yeah, you can uh, check out what Pluto's up to on his Instagram. Um What's his feed? I don't know if I follow. He's has much more. He has a much more interesting um, social media than I do because um, he can actually like, be himself on there. You know. Yeah. Um, I obviously I hold back so much. <laughs> no, he, uh, he. It's a lot of his belly, him eating fruit. Um, he's got you know, he's got a lot to say. Did you get a picture of him when he was on the mic? I did. Oh. So that'll be on his there. first podcast. Yeah, yeah, not his last. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for having me on this pod. It was fun. Yeah. Thanks. Sound and Vision is recorded, edited, produced, and facilitated by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find more images of the podcast the scenes in the studio at sound and vision podcast on instagram you can find more about my work at alfred studio on instagram 
weekend. Check out more pictures also on the website, sounddivisionpodcast.com. You can also donate to the podcast there. Uh, please leave a review and a rating on iTunes. It really helps the podcast get out there to more people who are interested in art and who might want to hear these artists talk about their lives. You can do that on iTunes. Also, thank you to Lullatone for the intro-outro music, for Michael Lovett for his introduction to the podcast. Also, thank you to Golden Artist Colors for the sponsorship and also for the New York Studio School. Make sure you check them out. Thanks to everyone.